So hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them or access them on your phone or however you access the scriptures and find your way to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 21 this morning. We're going to continue in the series we've been walking through 1 John called uh, Authentic and finding from the scriptures how God has designed us not to live in compartments, but actually to be fully integrated in who we are and how we follow him. And so this morning, we're going to take a, a pretty sizable chunk of First John, the last part of chapter 4, and walk through it and talk about understanding God's love. And, and I know as we've walked through this series, there's been a couple times that we've talked on that, and you probably, if you're really t- dialed in, you didn't even have to see the title of the message to know what we're going to talk about today because it was laced throughout our worship time. But as we, we look at the passage today, this is extremely important because when I say the word love, all of us have definitions of what that looks like or what we would say this is what love is. The challenge with that is that we have this assumption about love that we think that we created love and then God uses it to show us his affection for us. When it's exactly the opposite. See, in our culture right now, it's really interesting that the, the, the word love or the concept of love has gotten a lot of press and a lot of definition in our culture. And different people will say different things about what love is or what love isn't. And the reason that's a challenge is because, again, in our own mind, we think we know what love is because we use it from our own context or we come up with our own definition. And when we look at the scriptures, we realize that God is the one who's the author of love. We're not. And so he's the one that gets to define that. And that's why even our basic concept of love, if we really kind of think about it for a moment, it gets a little bit skewed because ultimately love is about the object of love and what's focusing on that object as opposed to the one who's giving love. Let me explain this. So some people I know can say the phrase, I love you really easily. I mean, that like you, you meet them, the second time you see them, they tell you that you love, they love you. And you're, some people are like, I can't say that phrase. I have to know you for 10 years before I actually, that can come out of my mouth. But for each one of us, when we say the phrase, I love you, normally if it's in a romantic way and it's in a relationship, what happens is when we say, I love you, if we think about what we're really saying, is this is what we're really saying. Is we're saying, I love you because you make me feel this way. Or I love you because you do this for me. Not just, I love you, period, which means I am demonstrating my affection for how I care for you, but you feel something in you about that person, which isn't wrong, but if that's the way we define love, then we miss the bigger picture of what God defines love to be, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. It's so much more than how we define it. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read verse 7 through verse 21. I'm going to ask you, if if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Just maybe close your eyes, because I think one of the things that's important I read through every passage that we go through because it's important for you not to hear me. It's important for you to hear what Jesus is saying through the scriptures. So just listen to what John writes about this concept of love and understanding God's love. He says this starting verse 7. He said, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is, is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, we could just close our Bibles and go home now, right? I mean... Just let that for a moment settle in. One of the things that we do, and this is something I've changed recently in the last couple months for me, is sometimes if you've been in the church for a while, you become so familiar with Scripture that you fill in the blanks as you're reading it because you've read it before. And I found myself doing that, and over like this last year, I realized I needed to make a switch. And for me, since I was probably in high school, I used the, the New International Version, NIV, to kind of read devotionally and to teach from, and it's a great translation. But I knew it had become so familiar to me, I could almost read the words with my eyes closed. And when it became so familiar, I was losing the nuances of Scripture, what God was saying. And so actually recently, some of you who are really cl followed closely, you realize I haven't been reading from the NIV, I've been reading from the ESV which is the English Standard Version, which is different. It's a little bit, it's not as smooth as NIV because it's a little bit more literal of a translation, but it's been life to me because I let the words kind of settle in, like a big word that we'll talk about in this, pa in this passage, propitiation. That's like all of the word that we use all the time every day, right? It's such a common language. It's a big word that's meant to be unpacked for us to dialogue with it and understand what Jesus is saying to us. But letting that settle in, I want to just kind of, we're going to cover a lot of ground. I want to walk through understanding God's love and then talking about what does that look like when we understand it and how we experience that. So look at back at verse 7, 8, and then verse 16. The first thing about understanding God's love is that God's love is the definition. Understand this. Listen, says, John says, he says, let us love one another for God, or love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then in verse 16 again, he says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. John's making it very clear. The definition of love is God. So if we want to know love, we have to know God. If we want to know what is loving, we have to know the way God treats us. So why is that so important? Because what do we want to do? We want to say love is this, and it's something that's not true of God. But if we want to know what love is, then everything that God does by his nature is loving. Because he's the definition. God is never not loving. He is always loving because he is love. Why is this significant? Because in our culture, we go to great lengths to define what love is, and yet we've never experienced it. If you don't know love, you can't explain love. If you don't know God, you haven't experienced love. And that's significant because we have a tendency to try to explain things that we've never even experienced before. So, for example, somebody came to you, and they have never, ever been to the beach. They've never set foot in the ocean. But they said to you, I'm going to give you the best and most comprehensive definition of what the ocean is. Would you believe them? I hope not. Because if you have to understand what the ocean is like, you have to get wet. Wouldn't you agree? 
You actually have to set foot into the water. You have to actually experience what it is to get salt water on your skin and to get it in your eyes or to drink it when you don't want to drink it or to get pounded by a wave or to feel the sand in between your toes. All those experiences when you go to the beach or the ocean are all come by experience. And some of us in this room do not know what love is because we've never experienced it because we really don't know God. And knowing God is to know love. And that's why it's so important. Listen, our culture longs to be loved and to understand love, yet they struggle with embracing who God is. And sometimes that's true of us in the church. And until we fully embrace who God is, we won't really know what love is because he's the definition. So before we get kind of the cart before the horse and say, okay, this is what love is, we have to go back to say, who is God? How does he work in my life? What is his nature? What are the things that I know of him to be true? And that begins to help us to understand what love looks like. Second thing, understanding God's love is that God's love is personal. Verse 9 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Think about this. God doesn't just say, hey, I love you. I have warm feelings for you. I really think you're really neat and really cool. That's not the way God works. God says, I love you. Therefore, I will demonstrate in a very personal way what my love looks like. I will send my only son into the world to die on your behalf and suffer for you so that you can be free. It can't get more personal for God than to send his only son. And to capture what that means, to truly understand God's love means that you and I have to know that God is not some distant being that is disconnected from humanity and doesn't under understand our brokenness or our condition. It is very personal to him that he would actually send his son into the world, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to understand the human condition, to give his life for us, to be resurrected so that we could be free. It is so personal to God. It's not unlike, it's similar, but this is, doesn't quite do justice to what God's done, but uh, Bill Lear, who started Learjets years ago, was the creator of what became kind of the premier, kind of the industry standard for corporate jets in the world. A number of years ago, when he started his company, the man was brilliant. He had numerous patents, and he'd created a lot of things, but he was very invested. In fact, when you put your name on a company, you're relatively invested personally. It is your name, it is your reputation, it is your character always on the line, and he believed that about his company. So early on in his business, two of his jets crashed. And so when they, they started to investigate and unpack what happened in these accidents, they tried to replicate what happened to the jets on the ground, and it couldn't be done. They could not get the same scenario to unfold, so they knew that the plane had to be in the air in order for it to replicate the situation that caused the accidents. So what did Bill Lear do? He didn't go find a test pilot or an engineer or some pilot and said, hey, go up there at 30,000 feet and do this. He himself got in the cockpit, took the plane in the air, and recreated the scenario over and almost killed himself doing it. But he said, the reason I had to do that is he said, this is my company. And he said, I can't expect somebody else to do this because this belongs to me, and I can't put somebody else's life on the line if I'm not willing to put my own life on the line. Now, on a much grander scale, what did God do? Jesus willingly stepped into the cockpit, into the crosshairs of our sin and our brokenness because it is personal to God. God's love is so personal that he invested the most important thing to him his very son for us so there's a third thing a third thing is that god's love and understanding is god's love is costly in this is love that and this is what verse 10 says not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the here's the big word propitiation for our sins 
What's propitiation? In simplest form, it is somebody who makes payment, somebody who is a substitute, somebody who takes on the debt of somebody else to make sure that somebody's debt is covered. Jesus became the payment for our sin because God's justice requires payment for failure and sin. But instead of us taking it on, Jesus took it on for us. That's significant. This week, as I was walking through this passage, I was just really thinking, now, we, if you've been, you're like me, if you've been in church for long, maybe you haven't, but you, you, st- you almost can get too familiar with when we talk about Jesus' death and his resurrection and what Jesus did for us. Like, yeah, I know, I got that, I got that. But I want to just, just think, what did this mean for God? What did it mean for him to take his son and for Jesus to willingly become the payment for us who are guilty, even though Jesus was completely innocent? What does that look like? So I just started to think about my own life. What would that look like for me to experience just a little bit of what it costs God to show his love for me? So this is the only thing in my life I could even come close to kind of scratching the surface to say, this maybe this is what it's like. So, so let's say, for, for example, a thief breaks into my house. And in the process of robbing my house, he sets my house on fire. And the result of that fire is that he takes the life of my wife, Kim, and my daughter, Courtney, in the process. After that, he's caught He's put in jail, goes on trial, and he's convicted. Now, when I'm sitting in that courtroom and I'm listening to the verdict and then I'm waiting for the sentencing, in my mind, in my human flesh, I mean, what would we all want to do? We want to see him fry. Let's just be honest. He should pay with his life for taking the life of my wife and my daughter. But as I'm sitting in that courtroom, if I'm feeling what God feels for humanity, then something else begins to happen inside of me. And this is what it would look like for me. Jordan would be sitting right next to me, my son, in that courtroom. And as the judge is about to render his punishment onto this defendant who is deserving of death, I turn to Jordan and I say, we're supposed to set him free. We're supposed to set him free. I know he killed mom, and I know he killed Courtney, but we're supposed to set him free. And the only way that's going to happen is someone's got to take his penalty. And I say to Jordan, will you take his place? Jordan looks back at me and says, I'll take his place. And he gets up from his seat, and he walks to the front of the courtroom, and he steps over to the defendant's table, and he pushes the defendant aside, and he says to the judge, I will take his punishment. That's the only thing that I can think of that comes anywhere close. We're the ones that robbed God. We're the ones, in fact, we're the ones in our own humanity and our brokenness and our sin that put Jesus on the cross. We're the ones that did it, and yet we're the ones that he says, step aside. I'll take on your sin. I'll pay for your sin so that you can go free. That is so costly, but it is so profound to think that's how much God loves us. Those of you who have kids, Think about that. Think about what that would mean to allow yourself to give your son, to give your daughter, to give your life, to give what is valuable to you so that someone who's guilty can be free. That's what Jesus did for you and I. Boy, it feels just like first service. It gets really quiet at this point. Let's go to number four. Understanding God's love also means this. God's love is proactive. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If we didn't love God first, he loved us first, which means this. That means God was actively pursuing and working behind the scenes of your life before you ever gave him a thought. 
Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8. He says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had no thought of what God could possibly be or do in our lives, he was already working behind the scenes to encounter us, to intersect our lives, to demonstrate his love. So I'll let you in on something you didn't get to experience because first service, Harold was here. Harold Franklin, who was our media and facility director, he and actually Catrice have taken off to go spend some time with family. They're heading up north to be with her family and his family. But something very special happened for Harold and Catrice yesterday. And those of you know Harold and Catrice, this is huge. They are officially engaged, which is pretty cool. And the experience of walking and watching Harold orchestrated this amazing thing for Catrice. So those of you who know Harold and Catrice, we all admire Catrice for her eternal patience, and we're always saying, Harold, would you hurry up and pop the question, right? Well, he finally did it, but this, the way he did it, just it, it blew me away. So Harold had this, this idea of how he wanted to do this, and he didn't want to just take Catrice off by herself and, and, and propose to her, although that would have been great, but he wanted to do it in a way that would be significant and special. So he, over the last couple months, has been working tirelessly with Lindsay Zaffron and with Stacy Hess and with a lot of people to orchestrate this amazing proposal for her. And the, the best part about this is that there were probably 75 to 100 people there yesterday, and Catrice had no idea it was coming. No idea. I mean, she, she didn't know how this was going to unfold. So, so we're in the backyard at the Pachifachi's house, and so, it, you know, Harold makes up some great excuses of where they're going. He blindsfolds Catrice. He brings her into the backyard, and all of us are silently waiting. And so he brings her into the backyard through all the people, and then he stops her, and they're standing in front of these balloons on this back hedge, huge balloons that say, marry me, with a question mark. So then she's standing there facing him, and, 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 and so he says, okay, take off your blindfold. So she takes it off, and I'm, I'm telling you, I wish we had the video for this morning. It was the best reaction to something I've ever seen in my life. She was so overcome with what was happening. She looked over Harold's shoulder and saw her family. So she starts crying. They start crying. She starts running over and embracing them. And she gets like to the fourth family member. I grab her and I turn around and say, look at Harold. (laughs) And she turns around and Harold's like, yeah, you can do that later. And she looks and she still doesn't see these huge letters. And finally she gets up there and she starts to see And then it really hits her. And then Harold grabs her and gets down on one knee, and then he proposes, and of course she says yes. It was just incredible. Now, what was so amazing about this is that Catrice had no idea. And I've been watching Harold all his spare time, and even sometimes I'll see him at, his, at lunchtime, he, for months he's been working on this, and he's been orchestrating this, and, I, and, and watching all of the details. In fact, I would drive into the parking lot sometimes, and, and Lindsay Zaffron would be standing in the parking lot, and I'd pull up my guy, I know what you're doing now. You're talking about the proposal. He goes, yeah. Harold took off time on Thursday. I mean, all this preparation, and all the while, Catrice had no idea. And Catrice would tell you probably the one of the most special moments of her life. The highlight to watch was one phrase she said. She looked at Harold and she said, am I dreaming? She was so overwhelmed with the, the moment. Now capture that on the grandest scale of all. The God of the universe is orchestrating your life to encounter you with his love every single day. And he's done it the ultimate way by giving his son for you and I and continues to pursue us in this world so that we'll have this moment, this encounter, where finally the light will come on and we'll go, you've been pursuing me my whole life? 
You wanted to demonstrate your love to me my whole life, and now there's those moments of awakening where like, wow, it's real. And God says, yeah, I've been here all along. I've been pursuing you all along and waiting for you to wake up to the reality of my love. Now, I know we've just scratched the surface of God's love and understanding what it looks like, but, but if we really get this concept of love, if we have been loved, then what will it look like in our life? John goes on in the passage to explain what experiencing God's love means for us. The first thing is this. If we truly know God's love, we will share it. We'll share it. You cannot contain it. So verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 20, if we say, I love God, but we hate our brother, he's, we're a liar. And we have to, if we're going to truly demonstrate that we are loved, then we have to love other people. We cannot say, I love God and hate other people because we've known too much of God's love. God says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here's the thing. If you and I struggle with loving other people, we struggle with being loved by God, directly connected. We cannot experience the depth of God's love and not love other people. And so sometimes when we struggle with loving other people, it's because we struggle with actually knowing and experiencing God's love in our life. Because God's love is this amazing thing. God's love is not, does not take work. God's love is contagious. It is. If you've experienced it, you can't help but give it away. That's why Jesus said one of the key indicators of followers of him and his church would be love. That would be the characteristic, the driving characteristic. And so when you uh, have something that's contagious, you have to try to keep from giving it away because it comes so naturally. Anybody had chicken pox before? I was in a family of four, three older sisters, and one school day before our Christmas break one year, one of my sisters came home with chicken pox. So my mom was really smart. She said, instead of having four rounds of chicken pox, let's just have one big chicken pox party. So we all hung out together, and we all got chicken pox. And we didn't even really have to try. We just had to hang out, and it happened. I didn't have to, like, get a blood infusion for my sister. She didn't have to spit on me, nothing. We just hung out, and I got chicken pox. Isn't that amazing? God's love is so much greater and power, more powerful than chicken pox. All you have to do, if you really experience God's love, you hang out with people, guess what they'll feel? They will feel God's love. But until you feel God's love and know God's love, you can't give that away. But when we really experience it, then it becomes a characteristic of who we are. So if you have a difficulty loving people, then back the truck up and go back to the beginning and say, okay, what is it deficient in me that I don't understand God's love? Because that's where it starts. Second thing, experiencing God's love also means that we actually demonstrate it. Verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Catch this, what John's saying is, God looks down on humanity and he watches his love unfold in our lives. And when we experience the depth of his love and we start to demonstrate that to other people and they get it, then God looks down and he says, perfect. That's what the point was. For them to experience my love and for them to demonstrate my love to everybody else around. That's what it means. Love, the perfection of love is not in you and I just being the recipients of God's love. The perfection of love is us actually knowing what that means and then that becomes the demonstration of our lives. That becomes the reputation of who we are. That becomes our primary identity. That's the struggle that we have in our culture today. When you ask somebody, the average person on the street, what do you think of the church in America? Love is never on the top 10 list. 
Very rarely. It's usually what? Hate, bigoted, judgmental, hypocrisy, all those things. That's, that's the top 10 list. Love might eke in there on the bottom, but that's just like, ah, I guess I can throw that one in there. It's not really true. But shouldn't it be the top of the list when somebody asks that should be who we are? When we were up in Newburgh, Oregon, pastoring there, sat down with a pastor who was new to the city. He had been there for probably six months. We were having lunch one day, and so the church name that we, the name of the church was Newburgh Foursquare Church that we pastored. And so we were sitting down for lunch, and he said, hey, he goes, he goes I, I've been kind of getting to know the city of all, you know, 25,000 people in Newburgh. It's not a huge city. But he said, I've been kind of out in the community and meeting different people and talking to different business owners and just kind of getting to know our city. And he said, he goes, I've been hearing stuff about your church. And I'm like, that's never a good thing. <laughs> and that's what I'm thinking. And he goes, like, people are saying things about your church. I'm like, oh, no. It's usually not good, you know? It's like it's all the negative stuff. And so this is what he says. He, sa- he goes, do you want to hear? And I'm, I looked at him I'm like, no, I really don't want to hear because I know it's going to be negative. He goes, no, 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 he goes, you need to hear. I said, okay, all right, go ahead, lay it on me. I said, what are they saying about Newburgh Foursquare Church? And one of the things, honestly, I did not want to hear was that that's the, that's the church that pastor, Amstead's pastors. That's what I did not want to hear. Oh, they had a really good pastor. He preaches really good. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't hear that. You know what I heard? He said, I keep hearing over and over and over again when I mention Newburgh Foursquare Church, this is what everybody says. Oh, that's the church that cares for the poor in our city. And I remember I just sat there stunned. I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yeah. He goes, I've heard it multiple times. That's the church that cares for the poor in our city. There's 43 Christian churches in Newburgh. And all of them, we had the one reputation. That's the church that cares for the poor. And I remember sitting back, and that wasn't because of me. That was because God was doing something in our church and impacting our city, and word was getting out. So when they heard of Newburgh Foursquare Church, they didn't think of what? Bigoted, hypocrisy, judgment. They thought of care for the poor. When you're walking around our city, when you're engaging people in Simi Valley, when you're engaging people in Moorpark, when you say you go to Antioch Church, what do they say? I never heard of that church before. What do they say? I don't know. I know what some people say. Oh, yeah, that's the church that used to be over on Shasta. That's the church that used to be New Hope. That's the church that used to be Sunrise. That's the church, and then they rehearse our past. If we become a church that actually loves our city, no one will even care about our past. They won't, because our identity will be different. We'll be defined by who we are, not who we've been. And that's what Jesus intended. That's the beauty of the transforming work of God in our life is when somebody meets you and they know who you used to be and you're no longer that person, they're going, okay, wait, this has got to be a God thing because I know you. You're not good enough for this, right? Because God's transformed us. That's what it should look like. It should be this demonstration of what God has done in us because we've experienced his love. And then there's a third thing of experiencing God's love and what it means. It means that we actually accept it. Verses 15 and 16, John says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. I think that is probably the most difficult verse in this passage for most of us, that we have come to know and actually believe the love that God has for us. Not for all of us, but I think for many of us, we struggle with actually accepting God's love. Because we have somehow bought into this idea that though when I met Jesus, I was desperate and broken and became passionate about him, over time I've become religious and I've become 
focused on morality and purity and not doing the wrong thing. And so what happens in my life is no longer am I driven by passion. I am driven by this, this control and this obligation. And so what begins to happen in me is I struggle to think that God can actually love and accept me. So I work really hard. Here's the crazy thing. That God has orchestrated human history, and this is the, throughout scripture, the Bible uses the analogy to take the church and Jesus and says, the church is the bride and Jesus is the groom. And we come together in this beautiful thing called marriage in relationship with him. And that means that Jesus, throughout human history, over and over and over again, is proposing. He's proposing to his bride. He's asking to engage in a relationship. He's welcoming the bride into relationship with him. But there's a question. What do we say when he invites us? How do we respond? It isn't, it isn't enough just to know that God loves me. I actually have to accept and actually believe that he actually loves me. Would have been the greatest tragedy yesterday if Harold would have gone through all that he went through for Catrice and all of her family's there and his family's there and we're all gathered around and he's doing all this and we're waiting for the moment and he gets down on one knee and he says, Catrice, will you marry me? And she looks him straight in the eye and she says, no. That would be a really bad day for Harold. But how many times in our life when God is orchestrating everything in our life And he's orchestrated human history by sending his son and dying on the cross to make a way for us to experience life, life here and life forever. And he comes along through circumstances and through people and through encounters, and you know that God is saying to you, I'm inviting you to this relationship, and I'm wanting you to understand my love, and I've made a way for you to embrace that. And you say, no, no. Maybe because I'm too busy. Maybe because I don't believe it. Maybe because I've become religious. And then we miss out on God's love. Actually accepting God's love. See, when, when I, I know when those moments in my life when the light comes on and it's like, ah, oh, I get it. Now I'm at peace. Now I no longer have to, to work for what I thought I had to work for. There's a final thing. Verse 17 and 18, experiencing God's love means we actually trust it. John says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment when God will hold all people accountable for their lives. Because as he is, uh, so also are we in this world. Then verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Catch this, John's saying this. If you live and your primary context of relating to God is based on fear, you don't know God's love. The reason that's significant is that so many of us live in the context of fear with God. Not fear and reverence and respect for him, him, but we live in fear of him because we constantly feel like we don't match up and we're not good enough. And by the way, newsflash, God already knows that. That's why Jesus died on the cross for us. He knows that we're not good enough. But the challenge is that we live with that reality. And so instead of having this beautiful relationship of what God wants to do in our lives and relating on the basis of God's love, we live with this constant weight every single day. I just don't want to mess up. That life is exhausting. 
it's constricting, it's confining, it's overwhelming because you're crushed by your own sin and your awareness of every single moment. You just don't want to mess up, and that's not life. And some of us think that's life. So I know Jesus, and the rest of my life, I just try to avoid sin and manage it until he comes back, and thank goodness, I'll barely make it into heaven. Really? Jesus died for that? No, he died for so much more. He died for us to have life. And some of us live in this constant fear. That's why John says, listen, perfect love casts out fear. If you are really loved, you no longer live in fear. That's not the context you have with God. It doesn't mean that I get to go out and just do whatever I want to do, but it means that I don't live, that I'm going to constantly mess up. So I tiptoe around God because I don't want to take him off. By the way, his wrath has already been satisfied on the cross. So whether he was ticked off at you or not, Jesus took the brunt of his wrath for us. So he's not ticked off anymore because his wrath has been appeased by Jesus. This is so significant. And why is this significant? Because, listen, grasp this. God loves you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Nothing. People I know right now go, oh, no, no, you can make God hate you. Really? God, God chose to love you and made a way to love you through the death of his son on the cross, so he's chosen to love you. Why is that significant? Here's the reality. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. All that matters is what God thinks about you, and guess what? He's already told you what he thinks about you. He loves you. He's justified you. He's taking care of your sin. And so when you and I stand before God, does, God loves us, and that's it. Done. Settled. So if you wake up tomorrow morning and you feel bad for yourself, that's not God. That's your own self-pity. If you go to work and somebody doesn't like you, who cares what they say? Because God loves you and it doesn't matter what they say. All that matters is what God thinks and God's already told us what he thinks about us and he loves us. Are we getting that message? Because what do we live in? We live in, oh man, we get down on ourselves or somebody says something to us, we just, we get down on because they said it. It's like, oh, we live in this. And so what do we do? We play life not to lose instead of playing life to win. Let me close with this. There's a huge distinction in the way we live our lives. There's a good portion of us that we play our lives not to lose. It's the same mentality that crept into the one servant of the master in the parable Jesus told about the master who gave money to his servants and the one servant who took the one talent that his master gave him and it say, he said he was afraid. And what did he do? He buried it in the ground so he would not lose but he did lose. In fact, he's the only one in the story that's called wicked. Why? Because he was afraid. He didn't risk. When you know you're loved, you'll risk. Because even in risking, you know that you can't fail because God still accepts you. So let me put it in this context. One year in high school, end of the basketball season, we were in the league championship. It was the last game of the season, winner take all. So <clears throat> getting to the end of the game, and this was a very difficult defensive game. It was the score coming into the end of the game. We were behind by one, 28 to 27. That's like boring game. You know, a lot of defense, not a lot of points. Seven seconds left. One of our guys gets fouled. Coach calls timeout. So he's going to the free throw line for two shots with seven seconds left. We're down by one. I will never forget this. So we all get pulled into the huddle, and we're all listening to what wonderful thing the coach is going to say to us. And this is what he says, without even flinching. The guy's name was Mark. In fact, John Denton, you know, is Mark Williamson. So Mark's going to the free throw line, and he, we're all sitting there, and we're waiting for what the coach is going to say. He goes, this is exactly what he said. I couldn't believe it. He goes, after Mark makes the second free throw, 
He's assuming he's going to make the, the first one. But he just says as though it's like a far gone conclusion. Mark's going to make both free throws. And by the way, when he's done with that, this is what we're going to do defensively. And I remember when he said that, all of us are like, whoa, coach really believes we're going to win this game. And I remember seeing Mark's eyes get really big like, oh, wow, coach really thinks I can make these free throws. And so, so he goes on and he plans out what we're going to do. And so end of the timeout, Mark goes out. In fact, I was looking at some old photos the other day. My dad actually has a picture with a scoreboard with Mark shooting a free throw with the score up there. Mark makes both free throws, nails them, and then we set up our defense and we win the game. And I remember we all thought our coach was an absolute genius to know that Mark, you know, Mark was not as confident as coach was, but it was when he said that, it was like, we actually believe this. This is going to happen. And it gave us a confidence on the court that we knew we were going to win the game. And the same thing is true when God says, listen, by the way, after you figure out that I love you, then you're going to live your life. After you figure out that I love you because I've always loved you and I've been working behind the scenes to demonstrate my love and you're finally going to wake up one day and realize that God actually loves you and everything's going to change. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask Danny if you'd come up and join us for one last song and then we'll conclude. But just with your eyes closed, I believe that for some of us today, today's the day that we are waking up to the reality of God's love. And that could be this is the first time you have maybe even embraced this concept of God really loving you. The first time maybe you've walked into church or, or maybe, maybe you've been a part of church or you've known Jesus for a long time, but you know that in, inside of you, you've struggled with this concept. But today, God is waking you up. And the way he's waking you up, especially if you have not been awoken before. In fact, you've been almost sleeping to the reality of what God is up to in your life. But now you're realizing that God's love is so great that he's actually made a way that if you were honest with yourself in the midst of your brokenness and your sin and the things that you strive for in life that have not panned out because they've ended in failure, you realize that in the middle of all of that, you've really struggled with what it means to be loved and what it means to actually love other people. But now you're realizing the missing element is knowing God. And today he is giving you the proposal. He did better than getting down on one knee. He actually came and became human. Jesus, who was fully God, came into the world. And his proposal was on the cross where he said, I'm going to take your sin and your brokenness and what you deserve, and I'm going to take it on myself, even though I am innocent and I am perfect, so that you can be set free to now truly live life. Now, in order for you to accept that proposal today, you're going to need to begin to tell him that. You're going to have to say yes. You're going to have to realize as a bride says yes to the groom and proposal, that means I choose to now allow my life to be intertwined with your life, to leave the life that I used to live and now begin a new life with you. That's what Jesus is, is, is requesting of you today. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do one simple thing talk to him right now in your own words begin to express to God that's what I desire I want to know your love I want to experience the forgiveness that comes Jesus through your death that sets me free to life I want to offer over my sin and my brokenness and all the things that I've done that I know were failed attempts at trying to maybe understand love or live the life that I'm supposed to live and now I surrender all of that 
And now I embrace a brand new life with you, Jesus. And if you're here and you've known Jesus, but now you're maybe waking up that God actually loves you, would you just allow God by his spirit to melt your heart today? To get a hold of you, to remove your excuses or your blinders or your barriers so that God's heart can penetrate deep, as Megan was sharing earlier in communion, that it would be something that is at the core of who we are, that we would fully embrace what Jesus is doing. Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, as we just before we conclude, would you begin to, to seal in us the truth of your love so that, Lord, not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next month and the years ahead, we will wake up every single day of our life realizing we get to live life to win because you love us and that your love never changes and your love never ends and your love never goes away and your love is constant and that we will begin to live that out and as a result, we will be people known by love because we have been loved by you. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.